Awesome. Well, welcome to Resurrection City Church, everybody. Uh, my name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors here at Res City. Uh, if you are joining us uh, for your first time or your 100th and whatever time uh, since we've been a church here for the last three years. We're just excited to have you uh, worshiping with us on this beautiful Sunday morning. Um, I'm going to pray for us, and we are going to uh, get started with our sermon, which I'll explain to you here in just a second. Lord, thank you for uh, the opportunity that we have every single Sunday to gather as people who are set free, um, who are can sing hallelujah, can praise you because um, you have come and you have set us free. You've given us a living hope. Um, I pray that as we study your word today, as we uh, learn from you, as we explore that hope, God, that you would uh, be with us in spirit and in truth uh, so that we may be people who walk with you um, better than we were uh, when we came in this morning, God. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So we are in a sermon series that we've been doing here, kind of our spring uh, sermon series uh, that is about uh, walking with the shepherd, kind of that image uh, from Psalm 23 of what it looks like for us to be the sheep of that psalm. I know a lot of us don't feel like we've been that maybe for the last few years. It's been a you know, ridiculous last few years, crazy. We're probably feeling overwhelmed. We're not feeling refreshed like the sheep of the psalm. And so this series has been us walking through patterns, uh, sometimes called uh, disciplines, spiritual disciplines of ways for us to kind of walk in step with the shepherds that we may experience uh, refreshment and, and wholeness was kind of the word that we use to kind of uh, understand what we're, we're talking about with this. Um, and when you, when you walk right? That's something that you typically try to engage your whole self with, right? It's not, hopefully it's not something where you're not thinking as you're going. You end up in a place you don't mean to, or you might trip up and fall, right? Like typically we're engaging our whole body and our mind uh, in that. And you guys know I, I, I like Marvel movies. It's something that I talk about occasionally uh, on stage here. And one of the reasons I like them, I think one of the big hook, really, if you think about it, is that at the end of a Marvel movie, there's always some post-credit scene that like is setting up the next movie, right? Well, I want to kind of piggyback on what we did last week. It was a bit of a post-credit scene, I guess you could say, in last week's sermon, because we kind of ended uh, talking about uh, embodied spirituality. That's kind of where we landed the plane last week. And we did that last week kind of in regards to uh, walking in the sort of shifting world of technology that we live in. How do we wisely navigate that as people who are walking with the shepherd? I want to pick up on that today and pick up on our understanding of being embodied and being embodied in our spirituality as we walk with the shepherd. A book I've been uh, working through here recently is a 2014 book called The Body Keeps the Score by a, a psychologist named Bessel van der Kelk. Um, and one of the ideas of the book is that people are a unity. That's, not, that's my word. That's kind of my paraphrase of what the book is about. But it's the idea that um, we're a unity uh, we are more than just our brains and what we think, right? We, we, what we do uh, with, with that is like, it, it's holistic. It's connected to our body. And the book is about, the book is about trauma. We're not talking about trauma today. Um, but, you know, one of the things he talks about is that one of the ways that we treat people or we should treat people who are kind of going through trauma is to kind of engage our body in the care of people, kind of giving people experiences in their body to overcome maybe the ex, you know, experience that they have experienced in their body of, of trauma, because that really affects our mind. There's an there's a interplay between the two things. There's this unity between us. 
Now, Scripture likewise talks about us as a unity, but it adds another element into our mind and body, and that's our spirit or our soul. So we are, uh, we are whole people. That includes our, our mind, our body, and our spirit. Okay? Our bodies are not just sort of fleshly containers for a spirit. You'll sometimes hear that language even in the church, like who we, you know, as if who we really are is just our spirit, right? And you know, we're just kind of hanging out in these, these meat suits for a little while until we die and go to heaven someday. That's not how the Bible conceives of us. We are spirit, right? There's a component to us that is that, but that is connected to and whole with our body. Now, if that's true, we should be relating to God in this unified state, not just out of our spirit or our mind, but also with our body. And the church and Israel before it had these practices that they would incorporate that uh, paid attention to that embodied state that we live in, in how they related to God. So things like body postures, like kneeling, okay, in some church traditions, kneeling is a really important part of the uh, relating to God, actually in your body, posturing yourself a certain way. Um, Communion. Communion is something we do to engage our body in a, in a spiritual purpose, right? We're actually eating and drinking uh, towards, toward, you know, to show our, you know, who we are and like how we relate to God. Um, singing, raising hands, right? You, you know, see a lot, some people when they worship like to engage their body in different ways, maybe moving around, like raising their hands. I know a lot of people here don't like to do that. We're very good Minnesotans in that we don't like to, you know, show a lot of emotion in worship. But like, you know, that's a, that's a way like a lot of people like to connect themselves to God in their worship. Or even in some of the things that we've talked about in this series, things like silence or rest, right? These are, these are things we do with our bodies and they help us to relate to God in a certain way. Now, as we sort of think about these sort of embodied ways that we can relate to God, there's one really important way for us to do that that we don't talk about very much, okay? And that is fasting. So that's what we're going to talk about today, the discipline of fasting. Fasting has to be on this list of ways that we uh, engage with God in our embodied way. That fast, because this is why, I want to really explain what fasting is and how we do it today. So fasting is an important way that we engage all of us in, in some spiritual purpose. It's saying that we're going to go into something or respond to something with our whole selves, not just spiritually. Now, I'm going to guess that, you know, most of the people hearing this, you probably don't fast on a regular basis. That's just my guess. I might be wrong. And maybe some of you have never fasted before. Or if you do, maybe it's for some health benefit. I know there are some health benefits to fasting. I know I have some friends who talk a lot about intermittent fasting, and that, that's great, but that's not really what I'm talking about today. Now, the reason I think why we don't probably regularly fast is not probably because we're not willing, but probably because we don't always understand it. We don't get what the relevance of it is, okay? And I want to really talk about the relevance of it today and why I think it should be part of a normal, like a normal pattern for us in the ways that we relate to God. So traditionally, fasting is abstaining from eating and sometimes drinking for some predetermined and set uh, period of time. 
Now, sometimes you hear fasting talked about as fasting from other things other than the food, like media, your phone, you know, music, podcasts, whatever. Like that you use, you hear fasting sometimes used to describe that. And I think that that's, that those are good. It's good to kind of consider fasting from those things sometimes. But I want to talk specifically about fasting from food today, because I think that's an important and necessary type of fast that I would even say is sort of above these other types of fasting. And scripture only ever talks about food fasts. Okay, when you talk about fasting in the Bible, it's always from food. It's always fasting from food. Now, why is that the case? Okay, why, what is the deal with fasting? What is going on with it? Recently, I got auto start put in me and Julie's car. And the, the person who uh, you put it in, he, he ran this business out of his house. Okay, so I kind of, you know, out of his garage, really. So I drove, I drove down to his place, and he kind of had a waiting room uh, set up in his house, like right at the front door. Kind of a lot of the stuff you normally find in a waiting room, right? There was like Wi-Fi info and magazines and, and different things like that. But really, like, it was the living room of a house. Like, you know, I could kind of tell that that's what this was normally used for, but they kind of repurposed it for, you know, making it a waiting room. And I could see from where I was at, I could see in the rest of the house, like these like other parts of the house that were the living parts, right? I could see a kitchen. I could see a room with a TV in it and some couches and a, a dining room. These parts where the family would, would normally hang out. Now, I knew like that I was not going to be invited into any of these parts of the house. Like I was a guest who was there to, it was a total business like thing, right? So I was supposed to stay in the waiting room part of the house. I would not have been invited to like say, if they were eating a meal, I would not have been invited to be part of the meal, probably. That would have been weird, right? If I had gone over there and asked if, you know, they had any leftovers or if I could jump in and eat with them, right? Okay, but consider, let's say that I had been invited over to these people's house, in a more serious moment in my life. Let's say like something was wrong with my house or in my, my life where I couldn't be at my home. So I, you know, they were taking me in. In a serious moment like that, they for sure would have invited me into the rest of their house and they would have offered me food. I would have been included in the dining room. I would have been included in the meals with them. That would have been something that would have been offered to me because it was a serious thing. It was much more serious than like a business meeting. And they would have put, really, if you think about it, the whole home would have been put towards that. That's what it looks like to be a good host of someone in a situation like that, in a serious moment. I'm sure you have had that before, where you've had people come stay with you. They're in a, in a serious place, and you offer them you know, a place to, to, to sleep for the night, and you, you know, tell them, like, whatever is in the fridge, that's yours, okay? When you eat a meal, you offer that you know, to them to come eat with them, okay? And the reason I think that we would do that is because things like food and drink, especially, are fundamental to what it means to be human, what we do when we eat and drink is sort of fundamental. And so in serious moments, we would engage that part of our house to that person as well. Does that make sense? Well, in a serious moment, kind of like the one we're talking about here, in relation to God, you would think we would put our whole selves, the whole home or the whole house of our life towards God to show a sort of unity between those things. But we don't always. Oftentimes, we'll put like the, the business or spiritual part of the house towards God, but not the dining room. If we're going to engage God in, with all of us, especially in regards to serious things that we go to, to, uh, through, that means putting the whole house of our lives towards it, including the dining room. Okay, And that's what fasting is. Scott McKnight, in his book, uh, Fasting, 
says that uh, fasting is a person's whole body natural response to life's serious or grievous sacred moments. Fasting is us saying the whole home of our lives needs to be put towards some spiritual purpose. We need to invite God to the table, so to speak, of our lives in serious, grievous, or sacred moments. Okay, that's what fasting is. And this is a practice that's been around uh, for far longer even than the, than the church. Like I said, this is a big part of it, uh, the, the, the life of Israel. It was a major part of their civic life. We'll kind of give some examples of that here in a little bit. Jesus did it. We'll give a couple examples of that a little bit later on too. The early church continued to do it. And Catholics and Protestants alike, even though we don't agree on everything, both uh, traditions of the church have continued to use fasting as an important part of their spiritual life. Basically, it's been an important part of the life of the people who follow God at all points in the history of God relating to humans. Okay, so consider that maybe it's a practice to, you know, that you should be incorporating into your life. Now, what is it? I really want to dig into what fasting is today. Uh, and Scott McKnight, again, in his, this is a bit of a longer quote, but it's, it's so good, I, f- I feel like it's worth reading. Um, and this, this whole book, I'd really recommend it to you if you really want to dig into more what fasting is. A lot of the, what I'm talking about today is taken uh, from this book. So here's what he says, a little more description of fasting. Fasting is a choice not to eat for a designated period of time because some moment is so sacred that partaking in food would deface or profane the seriousness of the moment. When Israel sinned and called for a fast connected to repentance, eating would have shattered the seriousness of the repentance. They felt it necessary that the body be afflicted to express their repentance. When Israel summoned others to fast in order to plead with God to protect the nation from war, eating would have profaned the sacred respect for the nation. When Israel grieved over death, any kind of physical comfort or pleasure would have broken the somber nature of their grief. I believe biblical fasting begins right here. Because of the sacredness of some moment or a task ahead, an embodied person chooses to avoid physical indulgence for a period of time in order to focus attention on God. Okay, so what we see here is that fasting is usually done for some purpose. It's in connection to something else that's going on, a sacred, serious, or grievous moment that we find ourselves in. Okay, we talked you know, a few sermons ago about prayer when, you know, when we feel something deeply. Fasting is another practice, I think, that we should be connecting to deep emotions that we have, deep, you know, strong things that we're feeling. It's another way for us to connect that to God through abstaining from food. Now, fasting can be done several different ways. Okay, you can do it spontaneously, okay, without a plan, but you kind of determine in some moment, like this right now, like this moment I find myself in that I've been thrown into, deserve, it has, has a weight to it and it deserves to kind of be acknowledged through a fast. Okay? In a heavy moment, in partnership with some prayer request, you find yourself praying. Maybe you decide in that moment, I should add, add a fast to this. So an example of this, there's a story about a particularly low moment uh, for the nation of Israel in their history, and it takes place in Judges 19 to 20. 
Now, I'm not going to read it or, or, or kind of get into the specifics of today because it's pretty heavy. I think I'm probably going to have you read through it, though, in community group this week, so just a heads up. Um, but it's a disturbing kind of graphic story. It involves uh, abuse, murder, delight in death, kind of some obscene stuff in it, okay? And, and, and it ultimately leads to Israel's first civil war, okay? So it's pretty bad. It's a pretty horrific moment. And it leaves the nation so shocked uh, by the depths of what they kind of saw was possible for some pe- in their midst, that they're kind of just shell-shocked. They're kind of a collective trauma in the moment. And, and people kind of come together from all parts of Israel to decide, like, what do we do over this shame? Okay, and it, and it leads to some pretty drastic acts. Like I said, it kind of sparks even like a civil war, you could call it, within the nation. Now, maybe we have a hard time understanding, like, what would it look like for a group of people to decide to do that together? It's because we're very individualized in the West. But, you know, like, I have a friend, he's a, he's a Korean pastor, and he t- was talking about, kind of in response to the George Floyd mor- murder a few years ago, one of the, one of the officers was, was Hmong, and he and a lot of people in his Korean community, they noticed it, and collectively, because this is a much more uh, collectivist culture, felt a lot of shame about that. Even though they weren't even among themselves, they felt a lot of shame just kind of being close to that person. And they, they kind of felt shame, like they were involved in it in some sense. They kind of took responsibility for the actions of this other police officer, which I found very interesting because you know, most Americans would respond very much the opposite way. But this is kind of what's going on in Israel here. Collectively, they feel so much shame over their, what's going on in their culture that they feel like they have to do something. And what else could they do with this sort of gut punch of this moment, you know, with the wind knocked out of them and this overwhelming desire to reform, to be better before God? They do, they do a big fast together. That's what their response is kind of spontaneously to this moment. In their bodies, they acknowledge the grievousness of what's just happened, and they do it by abstaining from eating for a period of time. Okay, so that's one way, spontaneously. But you can also do fasting in a more uh, habitual way, okay? Athanasius, this Egyptian uh, bishop, he called this like a sacred rhythms of fasting, okay? And this would be like a practice, a regular kind of uh, pattern of fasting. Now, that's what Lent is, like for, for church traditions and people who kind of do Lent, that's a part of the year, every year that you engage in some fasting for, you know, the, the purpose of repentance and self-examination and preparation for Easter. That's a regular part of, you know, the habit of your life. And, and it, uh, you know, a lot of us are doing that right now. We're kind of, you know, we're doing a Lent Devo, engaging in that. That's why we fast as, as part of that, if you're doing that right now. Example, again, Israel also had these sort of uh, uh, rhythms to their fasting. So on the Day of Atonement, one time a year, the nation would, would stand in remembrance of the past year's sins. Okay? And, and s- several things happened on the Day of Atonement. They would confess sin. God would cover the sin. Um, the temple would be purified, and Israel and God would be reconciled back to each other again. But as part of this sacred yearly rhythm where they're looking back on the past year's sin and paying attention to it and the fact that God has to do something about it, they would fast. They would connect their body in their turning from the year's sin in a sober acknowledgement of it. Okay, so this was part of the rhythm, a normal habit of what it meant to be uh, an Israelite. And, and the church, again, like I said, has kind of picked that up in different ways, you know, regarding to Lent. Now, what kind of situations 
do we find, you know, I've given a couple of examples here of, 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 of situations that we find fasting in the Bible. Here, here's another just list, okay? If you're looking for different reasons that you might consider fasting, here's, here's a kind of a long list for you, okay? You could do it to strengthen prayer, to seek God's guidance, to express grief, to seek deliverance and protection, to express repentance and turning back to God, to humble yourself before God, to express concern for the work of God, to minister to others' needs, uh, to overcome temptation and dedicate yourself to God, or to just express love and worship to God. Okay, there's a lot of stuff here, right? There's a lot of things that I'm, you know, we all go through that, that's on this list that fasting is connected to, okay? Uh, I would just ask you, why not make, if, if you're going to go through these types of things, why not also make fasting a part of your, your routine, okay? I just ask you to consider that. Like, where in my life would fasting feel appropriate when I go through some of these things? Okay, let me just dig deeper into, you know, to what these things are. Like, you know, kind of tell you what it could look like. Let's say you do come to that conclusion and you decide, I do want to incorporate fasting into my life as I go through some of these types of moments. What could that maybe look like? Well, give, give me some examples here. So, I actually fast once a month. Um, I, I try to. I don't get to it every single month, but that's, that's my goal. It's my design. And I do it to kind of strengthen prayer. I pray, pray for like the well-being of this church. And, I, and I, I tie a fast to it every single month, kind of on behalf of praying for people. Now, I'm not doing this. Please don't hear me like trying to draw attention to myself or tell you all to be just like me, okay? I'm just trying to give you an example of what this looked like, looks, could look like. I fast for all of you because I love you guys and I love this church, okay? That's serious to me. That's sacred to me, okay? Sometimes that's, that's grievous to me, okay? So I want to like uh, tie the dining room of my life to that, okay? I want to put all of myself towards the seriousness and sacredness with which I kind of uh, treat w- what I'm doing here, okay? And so I've kind of decided like as part of that, I think it's worth it for me to fast every month in regard to that, I want God to know how serious I take that and to let me know how serious I take that too. It's a reminder for me every month to how serious sort of this task is. And I, I'm willing to sort of change my eating habits for it. Okay, another way, just recently, um, I and someone else from Rest City, we, we fasted together over a sort of big decision that they're facing. And we were kind of asking God to intervene to give some wisdom. Um, and it was a serious and sacred, you know, moment uh, and after some time discussing, we kind of thought, you know, the decision to fast was appropriate given, you know, the, the stuff that we'd been kind of talking about for a little while. Now, let me just say this. I don't always really enjoy fasting, okay? If you think that, like, when you fast, you're in some spiritual, like, nirvana because, like, you're just living on, you know, this spiritual experience, that's really not how it often goes, okay? Uh, I can get grumbly, I can get ornery and, and hungry, uh, I like to eat, okay? Food is kind of a big part of my life. So it's not fun for me to not eat for a certain period of time. And some days, like, as I'm going into it, like, I am not excited about it. I'm just gonna be really honest with you. But that's kind of part of the point, okay? It's kind of for us to experience, again, in our body, something serious. Like, let our body actually feel connected to the seriousness, the sacredness, or the grievousness of some moments. Okay, so that's actually like, if you're feeling that, if you're going into fast, you're afraid to do it because you think that might be the case, that's actually, you're doing it right then, I would actually say. All right, now let's talk about some other examples on this list. Fasting for the purpose of expressing grief, okay? A lot of us experience grief. 
sometimes in small ways, but sometimes in big ways, like things that like stick with us for a while, traumatic moments, big experiences we have that you know, we feel like this is worth grieving over. We can't help but not feel grief over it. Instead of like binge eating ice cream or drinking alcohol, you know, drowning your sorrows in that, which are both you know, things people do sometimes in response to grief or traumatic moments. And if you think about it, both of those aren't really like, appropriate given the circumstances a lot of times. right? Those are kind of the types of things we do to celebrate. Okay? Well, you're not celebrating anything. You're feeling grief over some moments. So is it appropriate to sort of self-medicate with some of those things? Okay? To try to escape the grief? I would say not really. I would say actually a more appropriate way to respond to it is to not eat or drink, to not do the types of things that we would do when we're in celebratory mode, right? To say, you know, in your body, no, my eating habits are going to fit my spiritual and emotional world here for a little bit. And for just a season, I'm going to let myself feel what I'm feeling and I'm going to tie my body to that. Or consider you can, you know, I've talked about strengthening prayer here and I've also talked about grief. Fasting allows you to kind of combine those two things together, okay? Going back to that story from Judges on this national fast, in disgust and then turning from what had just happened in their midst, okay? I would say most of us are probably find ourselves upset with things going on in the world. Something going on in the world right now, right, bothers you. You feel like just the kingdom of God is not here as much as you would like in some way. Okay? You can be frustrated with the church or, or other Christians. You could be upset by the state of you know, racial injustice and disparity that we kind of are witnessing. Right? You're disgusted about the state of political discourse, something, right? You, you feel some disgust about something that's going on in the world. Have you ever considered praying and fasting over that thing? Have you ever thought about, is this an appropriate response to what I'm feeling about this moment? or about this thing that I experience whenever I go on Twitter or watch the news, I find myself returning to this thing. It really bothers me. It might be worth it for you to consider praying for that thing and attaching a fast to it, to kind of experiencing in your body the frustration of what's going on around you and expressing that to God. Okay? Something to think about. Now, there are different kinds of fasts. Okay? You can uh, fast from certain kinds of food, you know, during Lent, I know it's common for people to give up, like, you know, sugar, like, or, or, or chocolate or sweets like that. You can fast from all food, okay, uh, you know, for maybe for a day, for a 24-hour period, or fast just from a meal, from a few hours in a day. You can fast from all food and drink, other than water, or you can fast from all food and all drink, water included. Now, mine, just the one that I do, I usually just do it, it's from 10 to 4, on a certain day, uh, I do you know, nothing but water over that period. I try to eat a little bit before then and not eat again until dinner. And I do no beverages outside of water until after 9 o'clock at night. Because I like you know, certain, certain fizzy drinks. Like I, I like, like stuff like that. So I try to you know, say, I'm going to go without that for even longer here. Okay? But in the past, I've done longer than that too. I've done 24-hour fasts uh, at times in college. And you can go further... Than, uh, than this too. You can go further than, than just um, do, doing food, uh, sort of denial of self in regards to food in your fast. So example, going back to Israel on the Day of Atonement, this day where they're repenting uh, from sin. In Leviticus 23, God says to deny yourselves, or it can also be translated afflict yourselves. Okay? Most scholars think that this meant you know, at least to deny food and water, 
But also, they probably, you know, did, they slept on the floor, maybe. They refused some of the comforts of friendship over that period. Um, they refrained from, from hygiene and, and sexual intercourse over that period as well. So they attached a lot of other experiences in their body to that fasting, okay? You can add that to your fasting as well. I've done that before for, for certain things I fasted for, some extreme measures like that. Okay, not saying you have to do it, but it's something to think about given the grievousness of the moment you might find yourselves in. It might feel appropriate to do that. Okay, it might seem extreme, but again, to connect the gravity of the sacred, serious moment, we engage our whole self, our body included. And there's other things we can do other than just uh, giving up eating. Okay, now I've said all this stuff. I do want to give a little disclaimer here, okay? I think this is important for us to at least mention, okay? Uh, talking a little bit about fasting and things like eating disorders, body image, medical conditions, okay? If you have certain health conditions, uh, I, w- I think you should take these into account when you fast, okay? God isn't glorified by you destroying your body. That's not what a fast is about, okay? It's not about you, like, you know, taking out anger or rage or something on your body, that's not what fasting is about. And so if you have some mental health or physical health condition, like diabetes or disordered eating, etc., that would make fasting difficult or potentially dangerous, it's okay to consider fasting uh, from, from something other than food or maybe consult a, a, a health provider or something before adding this practice to your spiritual routine, okay? Maybe you don't do a full-on fast from all food. Maybe you just fast from ter- certain types of food, whatever. Get creative, Julie and I would love to chat with you about that too, okay? But just keep this in mind as you go through it, okay? I definitely wouldn't want to lead you down a path of doing something that would actually be harmful for your body uh, in regards to doing this because there are other ways to express kind of some some of the stuff we're talking about here. Okay, now some of the stuff we've talked about here so far might lead you to think this is a, an extra way to be extra spiritual right before God and maybe to use to uh, add to something to kind of help you get a desired outcome, Okay. Fasting does not guarantee a desired outcome. This is not an extra bribe that you can offer to God to get him to, to do something you might want him to. Right? Like a kid cleaning their room really nice because they want to like a cookie after dinner or something like that. Okay? That's not what fasting is about. Okay? We are going to find ourselves fasting. Right? Again, if, if we're doing what we're talking about today, we're going to find ourselves fasting in some sacred, serious, hard maybe sometimes even scary moments, serious stuff. I think in these moments sometimes we uh, want to control them. Okay? That's something we feel out of control in some way, and we might want to figure out what's some way I can try to control the situation. We might view fasting as a way to try and control the situation with God. Okay? I give up food, I get what I want, kind of a quid pro quo, look at me, God, this is really great you should probably give me what I'm asking for. Don't think of your fast like that, okay? Even though that's a, neuro, like a, a natural coping mechanism, okay? Fasting in our serious, sacred, grievous moments is about a response to something we can't control. That's actually why I think we're fasting is because we're, we're admitting this is something beyond me to rein in in some way, okay? And I am gonna sort of acknowledge the seriousness of that by fasting, Okay? And God doesn't work like that. God answers prayer, yes. He delivers, yes. But he's not DoorDash. Okay? God is not someone who we can control by offering up something to him that we think is really good. Okay? That's not how God works. So we need to be careful in our fasting to not think that we can be shaping God in some way 
But we've got to remember, fasting is about God shaping us. And this is important, okay? Because fasting invites us uh, to view the world deeper than something to be controlled. To view the world as, as deeper than something that we can sort of figure out some formula to kind of control the world around us. In Romans 8, Paul kind of describes the state of the world in response to sin. And he uses some really, some, some language that it just has always stuck with me. Uh, creation itself is waiting to be liberated from its bondage to decay, he says. And he uses the word groaning to describe the world in bondage, like an empty stomach, right? It's groaning, it's waiting to be filled, it's waiting for God to do something. Creation, if we kind of think about it like that, is like, it's like a body fasting, it's waiting to be fed, it's groaning for God to act, and like I said at the beginning of the sermon, I've been listening to this book, um, The Body Keeps the Score, uh, and words like bo- feeling like in bondage or groaning on an empty stomach, I think are good words to describe some of the types of situations, the traumas that the author is dealing with as they kind of talk about this idea uh, of the body as a unity, okay? Uh, he's talking about what traumas do uh, to people when, when they face them, and he's talking about serious stuff like, you know, uh, war veterans, um, people who are victims of sexual or emotional abuse as children and who have been profoundly affected by that in their adulthood. Okay? It's, it's hard to listen to. It's kind of it's hard, hard to wade through it. Um, and I think it's a good example of the world we live in that is in bondage, that is ultimately groaning, okay? and that this groaning it's looking for is be, it's something beyond human ability to feed. Okay? Like, we can help people recover from abuse, from tragedy, from chaos. We can help, you know, individual people kind of walk out of those situations a lot of times. We have a lot of wisdom around that. But nothing we do as humans is going to eradicate things like abuse or war or oppression. Those things keep happening. I know how many people, I feel like I've read so many people kind of responding to, you know, what's been going on in Ukraine, saying things like, this is Europe, it's 2022, we thought this kind of stuff didn't happen anymore. We thought that we'd figured out the key to ending wars like this in the world, at least in the, you know, quote-unquote civilized parts of the world. Guess what? Probably we haven't. <laughs> you know, we're not as good at eradicating this stuff. We can't liberate creation from its bondage, from its groaning, no matter what we put towards it. And fasting is a posture that we take in our bodies in respect to a world that groans, not to control it, but to humble us to that truth and also to draw the attention of our hearts towards what God is doing about that. Okay, and I want to talk a little bit about Jesus' fasts here and how he talks about fasting as a way to connect ourselves to what I just talked about here. Okay, it kind of clues us into what God is doing. So in Luke 4, 1 to 4, this is a story that shows up in some of the other Gospels as well. Uh, Jesus goes into uh, the wilderness, goes into the Jordan, uh, by, led by the Spirit, where for 40 days he's tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, he, he fasts, and at the end of it he was very hungry. We're told. And the devil comes to him uh, to tempt him or to test him. Isn't, isn't maybe a better way to translate uh, what's going on here? And says, If you are the Son of God, tell the stone to become bread. End your fast, Jesus. Uh, and Jesus answers him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. 
famous story in Christian history. And, but let me tell you what's going on here, okay? It's important for us to understand the background of why Jesus is doing this. So Jesus is in the wilderness uh, to fast and to sleep on rocky floor for 40 days and 40 nights and to be tested. Now this moment is right after Jesus has been declared the Son of God or God's Son in his baptism. Now Israel had also commonly been called God's son in the scriptures. Um, yet Israel often didn't act like a son to God. Okay? This is kind of what the prophets are always complaining about. If you read them, God is often saying, you guys are not being a good son right now, and here's what it looks like for you to return to me. Okay? Not just as individuals, but the collective itself. It was in bondage. Okay? It was groaning, just like the world around it. You think back to that moment I mentioned earlier in the life of Israel, that story from Judges I talked about, okay? Now, if a person or even people fasted because of some moment or tragedy or horror, it didn't undo their bondage. This is a good example of how this didn't control things. Remember we talked about how uh, the nation of Israel would fast every single year in response to their sin. Well, nothing changed for Israel. They had to keep doing that every single year. They had to keep fasting and turning from their sin on a regular basis. And in their own game, and this is why it's significant that Jesus was out there for 40 days and 40 nights, in their own game of 40 blank period of time, 40 years in the wilderness, they were groaning without much food following the exodus, and they failed the test of being God's son often. They take a journey that should take them two weeks. If you look at the geography of it, and they turn it into 40 years. Okay, they are circling the wagons over and over and over again. It's like a really appropriate metaphor for just humanity in general. This should take us two weeks to get here. We're going to take 40 years to do it. Okay, Israel's like a, it's a good analogy or a good metaphor for humanity in general. If Jesus is going to break through this bondage and groaning of chaos and evil and sin, if he's going to be God's son, what he's just been declared to be in the baptism, and, and, and successfully do what Israel and humanity could not do, being knocked off course into sin, into the clutches of chaos and evil that leads to things like abuse and trauma. He had to put himself into the same type of situation and then conquer it. He couldn't be the Messiah if he didn't pass this test. That's why this is at the beginning of his ministry. This is why he waits to do this before he publicly announces himself and starts going and doing the sort of regular ministry work we associate that Jesus does. Okay? He's going to prove that he won't succumb to this and he will be the son that God desired Israel to be. That's the symbolism of this moment. And so when you think about that, it makes sense as to why he would have been fasting here. Remember, we talked about fasting as something we do uh, as, you know, in sacredness as a response to something, but also as a, you know, as a response to a task that's being put before somebody. Okay? An embodied person might choose to avoid physical indulgence for a period of time in order to focus attention on God. So Jesus is fasting here for that reason. Because this moment that he's in is so sacred and grievous. This moment where he will determine if he uh, will be the one who will break through and do what Israel could not in order to liberate humanity from bondage and from groaning. He himself fasts here. And the devil throws the best he can at Jesus, kind of like he'd done for Israel, and even going all the way back to the garden, to Adam and Eve. And Jesus doesn't give in. Through two more temptations after this one, Jesus does not give in. He breaks through. He passes this test. He shows himself to be God's son. 
And so Jesus fasts here. Okay, we see this is a, 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 something that he's doing. But not long after, just a couple uh, chapters later in the book of Luke, Jesus' disciples notice that they don't fast like the John the Baptist disciples or the Pharisees. Okay, they act differently now. What, what gives? Like, we're known for feasting, not fasting. Like, what's up with that, Jesus? Why don't we fast like everybody else? Okay? This is a good question. Why did, you know, because Jesus himself fasted just a little bit earlier. So this is what they say to them in Luke 5, 33 to 34. Um, uh, they, sorry, to 35. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. What's up with that? Jesus answered them, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days, they will fast. So here's what it seems like. My best guess of what's going on here is that Jesus sees his passing of the test in the wilderness as a reason to kind of get the party started, that God is doing what he always said he would do. Okay, God is responding to the bondage and groaning that humanity has been in. And now... Because that's been kicked off, it's time to celebrate, okay? When we celebrate, when Jesus is here, when God is doing what he always said he was going to do, we don't need to fast. We should be celebrating. And he uses wedding imagery for it, like a great wedding feast and celebration of something, okay? When you're at a wedding, right, you might show up, there's a cocktail hour or something like that, right, and you don't eat till then. But when the bride and the groom show up, that's when you start eating. That's what he's talking about here, all right? And he's saying, the groom is here. I am the groom. Let's eat. Let's celebrate. And that's why they don't fast as a people. But he's saying, like, I'm going to leave at a certain point here. And, and when I'm absent, we will allow ourselves to groan in the waiting of that absence, all the way down to our stomachs again. And that's why we continue to fast now in the church, because Jesus is not present with us, not in the way he was at least uh, at this point. Now, someday we look forward to a time, again, when Jesus will be with us, where we don't need to fast anymore, but we will celebrate as we wait for Christ's promised return. That's something he's referencing here. Now, all this to say, okay, I want to wrap up the sermon here. This, I'm going to land the plane now and explain why I brought us to this point. Because fasting ends at a certain point, right? When you're done with your fast, let's say you do a 24-hour fast, at the end of that fast... I think what we're doing is we're getting a picture of the gospel itself, and we get to play that out in our actual bodies. What I mean by that is, like, when we end our own groaning, our own kind of bondage, we're putting our stomachs in bondage, if you think of it like that. We're letting our stomachs groan for a period of time. But when that fast ends, we're representing to ourselves the moment when Jesus will return, and he will satisfy us. He will liberate once and for all creation from its bondage. He will fill the groaning stomach of creation once again. And we get to play that gospel story out in our own fasting. We get to feel that in our own bodies. And so when you finish your fast, I would tell you, get, get the ice cream out. Okay? Find something that you enjoy to celebrate with as a reminder for your body to sort of feel and experience what it's like for us as humans to be in this bondage, to be groaning, but to have the expectation and to you know, feel one day the fulfillment of the experience of Jesus returning and creation no more groaning, no more being in bondage. Okay? I can't think of a much more sort of clear picture of the gospel. And I think one of the ways that that's cool is it's not someone telling you about that. right? It's not you reading about that in the Bible. It's your body experiencing that. And that is a really 
I think, important way for us to experience the gospel. Okay? This is why it matters for us to tie our bodies into our spirituality because it can teach us in an experiential way about the gospel. Okay? So, anyway, as we kind of wrap all this up, I would highly encourage you guys to fast. I would hope that you would kind of see sort of why the church and Israel has sort of incorporated this rhythm into its life as a way to be embodied, to walk with the shepherd by incorporating this into their daily rhythms. Okay? And like I said, if you want to talk more about this, if you do want some more kind of ways to kind of consider what it could look like for you, uh, I know Julie and I and others here at City would love to talk about that. And in our community groups this week, we're definitely going to make you guys talk about this. So <laughs> look forward to that. I'm going to pray for us, uh, and, and then we'll do uh, communion and, and, and enter a time of worship. Okay? And again, communion here, right? This is something we do in our body every week to kind of do the story of the gospel in an experiential way. As we eat the, uh, body, the, the bread that's been broken and, and the, the juice that's been spilled, right? We're supposed to see uh, Jesus' body broken and his blood shed for us. That's us partaking in that, in our bodies, the actual gospel story. And we want to remind ourselves of that every single week as we worship, okay? So please partake uh, with us in communion today and also partake with us in worship. When you're done, stand and sing. Go ahead and throw your hand up. Go ahead and get your body involved in it, right? You are a unity, your whole body. Uh, So please engage uh, in worship here for us. I'm going to pray and then we'll get that started. God, uh, be with us this morning. Help us to experience in our bodies, God, the gospel itself. Thank you that you would give us in your wisdom ways to play out the story of the gospel in what we do, Lord. Uh, whether it's fasting, it's communion, it's worship, it, it, it's, it's, it's posturing ourselves, humbling ourselves before you and kneeling, God, whatever it is, God, I pray that we would become wise to know what it looks like to incorporate those into our uh, daily rhythm so that we may more strongly walk with you. We may more strongly be connected to you, God, and that the story of the gospel would be so strong in us, Lord, that we can, we can feel it and we can live it. God, we can have hope in it, Lord. Pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.